morning, everyone, and especially to those also um, at home, online. Uh, it's wonderful that you can join us, and uh, we really hope that this Easter season for many of us will be uh, something that we can really enjoy and, and celebrate and understand in a way that really helps us to engage with what Jesus has done for us and also tell others about what he has done wonderfully for us as well. I'm trying to remember this time last year, I think um, people were saying Easter's cancelled. <laughs> I think that was the phrase that was going on around in our circles, wasn't it? Because I think around this time last year, lockdown had started. Church leaders were running around like headless chickens trying to figure out how to do Easter without actually gathering together. And I know for many of us, maybe um, this past year has been one of, of quite difficulties as well for different reasons. But this morning as we focus our eyes on the book of Mark, and that's where we are, uh, it just so happened that the passages that we're reading today lie in this current series that we're doing in the book of Mark, which is exploring the person of Jesus. And it's wonderful that as, as the book lands, as the passages land now on, on the events of the cross, that we get to celebrate and think about that this week as we lead up to um, Good Friday, next Friday, as we think about and turn our attention to the events and the uh, impact that the cross of Christ has even now 2,000 years from where we were, from when it happened. So I want to just remind us really, uh, firstly, that when we think about the cross, we've already sung about it today wonderfully, and thank you Naomi and Anne and the rest of the guys and the team. You did a great job in leading us really to a place where there's so much to say about the cross. There's so much to think about and dwell on. But what I want to pray is that the Holy Spirit would enlighten and take something of the cross this morning that would bury deep in our hearts and would change us and affect how we live. Because if the cross didn't just, isn't just an event, it is an event, but it's not just an event. I want to just read a passage from Galatians 6, 14, and it says this. This is Paul writing, reflecting on the cross. He says, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just think about that for a second. I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to put it positively, I'm only going to boast about the cross. Now, if you're like me, um, I'm an Arsenal fan. And uh, we had a great few, uh, few weeks. Um, and there's a lot of boasting now, isn't there, in North London for, for, for victories and um, calamities over other teams in North London. But um, we boast about things that we love, don't we? We boast about things that matter, uh, matter to our hearts. We take joy in the things that we boast about. And sometimes boasting is seen as a negative thing, but also it can be seen as a positive thing. We celebrate, we glory in, we take joy in good things of life. We take joy in the wonderful things that we, we have a great meal. We go, oh, that just hit the spot. Or we glory in sometimes our children in a right way when they do well. I mean, they're well done. I'm so proud of you. Don't we? We do glory in things in a, in a, in a positive way. We should in the successes, in our celebrations, in victories of, in life. But Paul says, I will only boast in the cross. How does a symbol of death, a symbol of suffering, of pain, become something that we boast in? When was the last time you celebrated something that the Romans used 
or humans have used to inflict pain and suffering on other people. When was the last time? Just think about the insanity of somebody thinking about this. Do you glory in the electric chair? Do you glory in lethal injection? Do you glory in the cause of death? Even more starking, do you glory in the death of somebody that you love? There's something profound that's happening here at the events of the cross that we have to read and understand. And many of us um, would call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus, and, and we've experienced how this is not just a symbol of pain and suffering, but it's a symbol of hope, love, mercy, glory, praise, adoration. The symbol that we speak of, the cross, has become the symbol of Christianity. And we have to get our heads around why that is so and why it matters. So I'm going to read quite a chunky portion of Scripture now from, from Mark 15. And it's going to talk and walk through the, uh, the events of, of the cross for Good Friday. So I'm going to start from Mark 15, 21. And the Romans, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That's Jesus' cross. And they brought Jesus to the place of, called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was at the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And with Jesus, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derailed him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocking, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down. Now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who are crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shapatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on the reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come down, come to take him down. And Jesus, uh, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the married mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And he was, and he was in Galilee. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening came, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also 
himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's a lot to speak about in 20 minutes. <laughs> There's a lot that can be said. I'm really hopefully going to just run through a few items, but I pray that this week, as we go through Passion Week, that's what's been called in church history, uh, that we would take time to think about some of these passages that we're going to talk about today. And first, you want to stay with this authority, that the events of Easter, the events of the crucifixion, were real events. So often in the Easter time, we, we, we kind of mix Easter with Easter bunnies and chocolate eggs and uh, lambs being born. And those things are, are wonderful things. I mean, nobody hates a little bunny, do they? Or chocolate eggs. But um, one of the things that we have to realize and always remember that these were true, real, documented, eyewitness-accounted events that happened. Not just from the Gospels. The Gospels, all four Gospels talk about it and talk about eyewitnesses who were there. This passage itself talks about a range of people who were there at the events of the cross. Obviously, we know about Pilate, the Roman governor, who was uh, a real historical person who sentenced Jesus to death. We see him there. We see this man, Joseph Arimathea, who was a respected member. He wasn't just anybody. He was a, almost a politician. His word mattered. He was witness there. We see the scribes and the Pharisees, those who, crucified, who sent Jesus and, and, and um, effectively wanted him dead and his enemies were there. We see Salome, Mary, these people who he loved were there at the cross. All people, eyewitnesses, Mark records that to great detail, the place, the times, the people, so that we would know with authenticity that these things actually happened. Because of anything in history, we can easily put them to the side and just say it's myth or legend. But no, Easter, the cross, real events that happened, and they happened for a reason. Three times in Mark, prior to this passage, Jesus speaks about his suffering, the coming suffering that he was going to uh, experience with his, his, his disciples in Mark 8, in Mark 9, in Mark 10. This event was no tragedy, no accidental occurrence. It happened because it was planned. The cross of Christ, the events of, the, of his crucifixion and death were things that were talked about 700, 800 years prior to actually this happening. Jesus knew where he was heading. He knew the events that would happen to his life. He knew the suffering that would come. Isaiah uh, 53 is an amazing passage we can spend uh, you know, the whole of Jesus thinking about. But it says this in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah prophesying of the coming Savior, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 5. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Jesus was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So when we think about Jesus' sufferings, we, we know that there was a reason and plan. He wasn't just, um, uh, you know, bad luck or it was like, oh, poor Jesus, wrong place, wrong time. It was actually a choice that he made to journey to the cross. And why did he journey to that cross? He did it because of our iniquities, because of our failures, because of the place where we have done wrong before a holy God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. This is verse 6 of the same verse in chapter in Isaiah. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned. Not just bad people, not just good people who think they're good people. Everyone, everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Now, as we think about that, as you think about what Isaiah is saying, he's saying that every one of us, uh, young or old, male, female, uh, whatever race you're from, all of us are in the same boat. Every one of us has turned away from the living God and chosen to walk his own way. And the penalty for that has been this, that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And how did that happen? We see that in a number of ways, how Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. We see it firstly in the physical pain of Jesus. We see it, and I know many of us, I think, uh, have no idea, have no frame of reference for what the cross meant from a physical pain point of view. Um, I'll, I'll just keep it as, as, as high level as possible, but it was a slow, horrific, torturous, suffering way to die. It was perfected by the Romans to inflict the maximum amount of suffering and pain possible to a person. The words which is used to maybe describe it best is the word excruciating, which literally means in its translation, out of crucifixion or from the cross. That is how we use our words to try and describe and get our heads around what that actually meant for, for Jesus, excruciating, out of the cross, out from crucifixion. That's not the only thing that the cross meant. It was also shame and humiliation. As we know from the reading, the crucifixion happened at Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was a known place. It was a public place. It was in front of everybody who could walk in and out of Jerusalem. It wasn't something you did hidden away with some dignity. The whole point of the cross was a capital punishment which sent out a message that said, you are the worst of the worst and we're going to tell everyone what happens when you, when you break the law or when you are seen in society as an outcast. Jesus was associated with criminals. It wasn't a respectable death. It was a point of crucifixion. The point of crucifixion was to publicly shame, humiliate, deride, bring somebody to be even less than humanly possible, to rid them of all um, self-worth and dignity. And they put a sign up, didn't they? They put a sign and his charge. That was the reason why he was crucified. He was crucified because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, which he was. He claimed to be the one who would reign and rule. And the whole point of that was that don't try to be that. 
Otherwise, you will turn out like this person. Because the pain, there's the shame and humiliation, the public not mocking also, and the reviling that comes. So being hung up on the cross, on the public place, people would curse their insults at him. We read it here in verse 29. Those who passed by Jesus derided him. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. That's not being genuine, <laughs> just to put it straight. These were his enemies who were throwing accusations and taunting him to come down. Come on. You said you could save yourself. You save others, but you can't save yourself. Look at you. And as we reflect on that and we reflect on the position of Jesus, where Jesus was, who he was, we recognize that Jesus could have come down. He could have come down at any moment from Pilate through to this point. He, could, he, he said to Pilate, you do not have authority over me. I give up my life. I am choosing this. I am choosing to go to the cross. I am choosing to stay on here. His enemies cursed him and derided him, but Jesus says, I am going to stay here. And that speaks something of Jesus' amazing power, love, grace, authority, that though he had full authority, the armies of heaven at the command of his word, he chose to endure in obedience to his Father's will. And already covered in the previous weeks, um, how Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane already said, your will be done, not mine. He's decided, he chose already act in complete obedience to the Father's will and to suffer in order that he could love and rescue you and I. That is love. That is majesty. That is power to stay on the cross. But the cross also tells us something about us, doesn't it? It shows us something of the cruelty and the devastating nature of what sinful nature does to us as human beings, how we could create a, a, such a piece of torture, um, how we could choose to look at the face of perfection in the face of Jesus Christ and still call out against him, showing no mercy, no pity, nothing at all. That is exactly what sin does to us. It destroys us. It ruins us. It brings us away from the beauty of who God is, even in the face of Jesus on the cross, they could not see God. They were blinded to his beauty. And not just them, but us as well. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, and before Jesus became the person that he is to me now, I just lived life. I'm like, I must live life. Jesus, you know, my creator, the one who made heaven and earth, I just carried on with life. My, my mind is self-centered on myself and my needs and what I want. I could look at the face of Jesus and just pass him by until something happened in me, until Jesus saved me. And now my eyes are turned to him and I see something totally different. And I, maybe that's the same for many of us here, that we see all these things, we sing these songs, and we hear these things, but we do not see the face of Christ and who he is. So let me just talk quickly about what Jesus did at the cross. Moving on. It says at the sixth hour, and that's around noon time. So Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is around 9 a.m. in the morning, uh, scholars say. And um, at the sixth hour, that's around lunchtime, so it's a noon, 12 o'clock, darkness covered the land for three hours. 
So Jesus is hanging there on the cross for three hours, and now darkness comes. And darkness is a representation in the Old Testament of divine judgment. It's a representation of abandonment. We always, I always think about this. Why did just Jesus just die? As in, if the price for our sins was just for him to die, well, couldn't he just like, oh, done. You know, 30 seconds max. Why three hours? Why another three hours of darkness? And we recognize this about the cross and about our sin, that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. Jesus came to absorb God's justice and wrath against each one of us. So when we sin, when we do what's wrong, when we uh, are self-centered and we don't think about God and we, we choose sin, what it does, it accrues punishment and it accrues justice against us. And this is what happened to Jesus. He says he took on our sins. He bore our sins. And God's justice rained down on his son. The full force of God's wrath and punishment that was for me, for you, for those online, for this world, was pushed and laid on Christ as punishment that is deserved for every wrong that has ever been done. Again, reminding you of the verse in Isaiah, it says that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. Those three hours of darkness showed that. And as I reflect on that, I think, that's not fair, is it? That's not fair. How can the sinless Savior be crushed for the sins of the world? How can darkness, physically showing darkness, laid on top of the sinless Savior, be fair? And I just want to invite my daughter Isabel to help me just with a really quick illustration about what's happening during those three hours It says this in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For our sake, Jesus, he, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So this is what's happening on the cross. Jesus, the sinless saver, perfection personified, blameless through his whole life, still blameless on the cross, takes a sinner And he says to you, I'm going to take your sin. That your sin is darkness, your sin is evil, and I'm going to bear it on the cross for you. I'm going to take that away from you and put it on myself and suffer everything that that requires. But not just that. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Everything that I've done, my perfection, my obedience to the Father, and I'm going to clothe you with it so that when my Father in heaven sees you, he sees every good deed that Christ did. And he crowns you with a crown of righteousness. That is what Christ does. He doesn't just take away our sins, he gives us his perfection, he gives us everything that we could never ever achieve in life. If he just took away our sins, we'd just be to square one and we'd just start singing again. But what he does instead, he says, my perfect record, I'm going to place on top of you, give you as a clothe of righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees me and everything perfect that I've done. And from now until forever, 
you were seen as perfect. What does that mean for us? It means that we live without fear of judgment. It means we live free of trying to please. It means we live free of trying to buy up and, oh, what if God's going to do this to me or that to me because I've done something wrong in my past? No, you're, you're, what, Jesus, what he sees is you as Christ. As God sees Christ, he sees you in that way if you receive him. Clothed in righteousness. Jesus takes away your sin, your guilt, your punishment, and he gives you everything that he deserved as a free gift, now and forevermore. And we come to the last part of what Mark writes about here. At the end of those three hours, this is about three in the afternoon, suffering the weight of sin on his shoulders, Jesus cries out these words. Eloi, Eloi, lama shaftani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The climax of the cross are these words. Why have you forsaken me, my God? And Jesus' cry is not, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, they hurt. His cry is not, my friends, they've abandoned me, my enemies, why are you still here? That is not his cry. His cry is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus is experiencing here is the abandonment of God the Father. The abandonment of the one whom he was with from the beginning of time. John, in John 1, it describes Jesus' relationship with, like, with God the Father like this. They were one. They were one. And the only way I can think of how to describe this is um, for us to try and fathom what, what is happening here is that God is, is, is withdrawing himself from his son. All of us maybe have experienced a loss of love, haven't we? Whether that's a friend, uh, a parent, a loved one. Everyone has experienced the pain and the grief of separation from someone we loved or have loved. And I just want to try and amplify that the relationship that you may have experienced, which you've lost, and that sense of grief and loss isn't one of physical pain. It, it kind of is everything, isn't it? It's physical pain. It's emotional pain. It's, 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 it's heartbreaking love. And that is what's happening to God the Son and God the Father as his Father turns his face away from his beloved Son. It's like the greatest marriage, the greatest father-son relationship, the greater father-daughter relationship, ripped apart, but a trillion times deeper. A trillion, a billion times greater pain than that. And I think for some reason we can experience maybe some element of that in our lifetime. But what happens here is that God has experienced that abandonment for us so that we would never have to experience that abandonment from God our Father ever again. That is what we talk about here when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a loss of love. But those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will have never have to experience that loss. And that is what physically happens when Jesus dies. He cries out aloud, and the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And for us to understand what this is, we have to understand that this curtain was massive. This curtain was between us and God, between the Holy of Holies where God was sent to dwell, and between us as humans, was, uh, it, was in the, it was 20 meters high. 
That's, that's pretty tall. It was 30 meters wide. It was four inches thick. This curtain that demonstrated to us that we could never, ever approach God in ourselves. We were never allowed to enter into the place of God's presence because of our sinfulness, because of our humanity. But what Jesus achieved at that moment was this. The way to the Father is now open through my death and through my blood shed for you. Hebrews puts it this way, that the way of the Father is open through the blood of the way of the Lamb. That by Jesus dying on that cross, automatically, at that moment in time, visually, the way to God the Father was no longer a barrier if you entered through the person of Jesus Christ. The way to the Father is now open for all who would believe. Let me just, as a closing reflection, just think about this. If God took away your sin and your guilty feelings of, you know, feeling bad because of the wrong things we've done, if God healed all your relationships with your friends and family, if God took away, you know, his, his judgment and his wrath from you, if that's all that God did, he wouldn't have loved you. Because what he hasn't given you is himself. God loves you. God shows his full extent of love for you because what he has done, he's made a way for you to be in relationship with him again, to give you himself. If God gave you all health, all wealth, all happiness on this earth, money, success in your business, um, kids that grew up to be amazing people, but he did not give you himself, he would have hated you. But because he gives you himself, through the blood of Jesus, he loves you infinitely. He gives you what is best for you, and he's given you himself. We, totally undeserving of any of this grace, have received it on behalf of the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's only possible. It's only possible through the cross that we celebrate this Easter. It's only possible that every good gift has comes from this place of the crucifixion and the death of our Christ Savior. So my question to you is what we had at the beginning. What is your boast? What is it that you will give your heart's affection to? What is it that you will choose to live for and hold up as the most valuable thing that you know? What is it that you will sing your praises to and glory about and tell others about. I want to just tell you that without the cross of Christ, all that we deserve, every good thing that we receive would just pale in comparison to what we actually deserve, which is judgment. But because of the cross of Christ now, we see every good and perfect gift from God the Father in light of that. If God so loved me, how can he not give me all good things? How can I not ascribe praise for my family and for the good things you've given me if you were going to condemn me in judgment. But now I see the cross and I thank God, every good thing you've given me, every good and perfect thing now is a gift because of this, because of this event, because of this moment, because of your obedience, because of your goodness, because of your kindness, because of your love. And for many of us, we, we've, we, we celebrate that already. But what I want to encourage you is that will that be the boast of your life? 
Will you align everything that you know is good and recognize that it's only because of the cross that I can enjoy this fully? And if, you're not, uh, if you don't know who Jesus is, I hope that today I've explained something more of what he did for you, not just for a person or other people in this room, but for you. And if Christ is something new, is you understand about Christ this morning, I want you to take a step of faith this morning. I want to invite you that this forgiveness, this mercy, this love that we experience is not just for a select few. It's for everyone who would come and receive him. The Bible says that causes salvation. The Bible says that when you choose to acknowledge your sin, when you acknowledge that I am in this place of judgment, I am a sinner, the Bible says that we can believe that Christ died for our sins and willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty that was due me. We can take that and believe that and say, Jesus, you did this for me. But we can also commit our lives then to following the way of the cross. We can say, Jesus, because of what you've done for me, I commit my life to following, to trusting in you from this point on forever because I know that you love me. And we're going to sing and stand now, but I want you to respond this morning. I want you to respond in a way uh, that honors Christ. And if that's to sing now, sing with all your heart. If that's to pray and commit your life again to boasting only in the cross, I want you to do that. If it's to ask for forgiveness for your sins, the way is open. The cross is paid for your sins. Take that with faith. If it's to commit your life to Jesus for the first time and say, I want that. I want that relationship with God the Father. Then why don't you join with me in prayer now? And why don't we stand all together?